Thomas Simmons is a British opposition leader. He's also a distinguished historian and the biographer of former Labour Prime Ministers Clement Attlee and Harold Wilson. Nick, history's always been a great passion of yours, hasn't it? You uh, um, were a politics tutor at St Edmund's Hall, Oxford, um, but much of your politics there presumably was infused with history. How useful have you found your passion for history in day-to-day -day politics? I found it extraordinarily useful, Andrew, and it's great to join you on the podcast, by the way. Thank you. I think it assists, firstly, because you can contextualise things. When you hear about different things, when different things happen, it enables you to take that longer perspective, because rarely do things in politics come from out of nowhere. There, there are usually things, threads, running back that you can pick out that lead you to that particular point. But the other thing is that you can look at similar dilemmas that politicians have faced in the past, and it's often instructive to see how those dilemmas were resolved, or in some cases, not resolved. Either of those outcomes, I think, can be helpful as you consider the dilemmas that present themselves to us in the present. And can you think of an example of that in your own life, your own career uh, at all, either either recently or or in the past? When when was the last time that you feel that that uh, to use that Tony Blair expression, you felt the weight of history on your shoulder? Is it? <laughs> well, I, I have to say, what what's been taxing me as a politician ever since I came into Parliament is how Labour can win a general election, and of course, what I've been looking back at are those those there are some moments that are in a very specific context 1945 of course in that very unique set of circumstances at the end of uh, world war ii but looking very carefully at those those two post-war moments of 1964 and 1997 in particular as to how it was that those two leads and by the way to date harold wilson and tony blair are the only two Labour leaders who've won general elections since Clement Attlee lost power in 1951. But looking how they both managed to combine that vision about the future, but with a real sense in their manifestos as to how they could help people's everyday lives. So uh, I, I am, uh, alas, Andrew, as a, as a Labour politician, looking back at these moments uh, of winning for instruction on a quite regular basis. <laughs> well, you've written a, uh, a political biography of Clement Attlee and of Nye Bevan, and uh, and of course Harold Wilson. But we'll come on to Harold Wilson in a moment. For a Tory like me, um, they seem uh, Clement Attlee and Nye Bevan seem to represent two very different aspects of the Labour Party. Attlee, the um, perhaps deliberately uncharismatic but business-like, laconic, centrist leader. Uh, who got an enormous amount done and changed British society fundamentally. And then you've also got um, Bevan, um, who was a thorn in the side of the establishment, a great orator, charismatic on the left, um, who never really rose above uh, health secretary, although, of course, his monument is the NHS. Um, is that is that um, unfair? Do Am I, am I um, uh, characterising them wrongly but do you see them as being two different sides of the Labour coin? I think they are in stark contrast temperamentally I don't think there's any doubt about that. Clem Attlee was 
a classic chairperson leader. Uh, with, with some limited exceptions, I would say India and indeed the decision for the United Kingdom to have, to have its own nuclear weapon. With those particular exceptions, he tended to allow his ministers to get on with it. He was very understated, almost allergic to the press, uh, wasn't keen to engage in that part uh, of politics uh, at all. Indeed, when uh, his press secretary, Francis Williams, wanted to ensure that Clem was regularly updated uh, on the news. You may recall the old ticker tape machines that used to exist. Yes, yes, and no, the, absolutely, yes. Yes, and the, <laughs> the, the the only way he could persuade Clem Attlee to have such a thing installed was if Clem would be regularly updated on the Middlesex cricket scores. I mean, the idea of being constantly updated on the news did not appeal to Clem Attlee in any way, and he had this, this very clipped and laconic uh, way of speaking. Nye Bevan... Uh, was very much a stormy petrol. Nye was a great, passionate orator, but somebody who was also capable of fits of temper that were often to his own detriment uh, throughout his career. I, I don't think, though, that they are quite as far apart politically as might be suggested. If you if you look at the Attlee government and Iron Bevan certainly up until the early part of 1951, was a, a very loyal member of it and was certainly very committed to its central mission. And I think the, the contrast you raise as well is also an interesting one in terms of the decision that Clem Attlee made in 1945 to appoint an Iron Bevan to the cabinet, because there is a world in which he wouldn't have been appointed. Remember, Bevan had been at times a critic of the wartime coalition, and of course, Clem Attlee was part, a central part of the wartime coalition. So you, you could see a scenario where Clem Attlee held a, a grudge about that, as someone else might well have done. But I think it's to Clem Attlee's great credit in 1945 that he saw Bevan as this, this great creative force, but believed he needed to be harnessed, believed that for him to be at, at his most creative, needed the discipline of being a minister. And I think Clem Attlee's decision to appoint Nye as Minister of Health and Housing turned out to be an inspired one. And um, how key is that moment in Labour Party history when um, when Bevan and others, uh, including Wilson, I think, um, resign over the paying for spectacles and, and false teeth? It is a seminal moment in post-war Labour history. It, it was about much more than that that issue though that is ostensibly what caused it that budget of early 1951 Hugh Gateskill as the Chancellor uh, wanting to introduce those charges for teeth and spectacles but it was also about the great rivalry between Anaya and Bevan and Hugh Gateskill they were the two leaders of the next generation post Attlee it was likely that one of them it turned out to be Gateskill would succeed uh, Attlee but it was also about this this great defence program that the uh, that the government was committed to after Clem Attlee crossed the Atlantic to see uh, Truman uh, around the start of the the Korean War. Now, uh, Nye uh, opposed that on a variety of different grounds. He supported martial aid, but felt this was a move to a more confrontational style of American foreign policy. 
but also doubted that that huge amount of money could be spent in the time available. And even, and, and indeed, uh, it, it actually wasn't. There's a there's a nice Winston Churchill speech which you may have come across in your uh, great biography, Andrew, in early 1952, when uh, Churchill remarks that you know perhaps not with the best of motives, but the member for Ebervale did turn out to be uh, did turn out to be right uh, about this. So there was that that real real clash. But I think it also represented as well in terms of the Labour Party so, something else. I think because. In 1950, there'd been a symposium uh, at Dorking in the, the June, in the early part of the summer of that year. And of course, in one sense, the Attlee government was a victim of its own success because it had implemented, quite rarely for a post-war government, virtually everything that was in its manifesto. And the debate was, where does Labour go from here? And the debate at that at that conference, you, you could almost transpose to to any of, of the the, the post war uh, sections of, of Labour Party history. It's essentially, do you uh, continue down the route of the Attlee government around further uh, nationalisation, or do you accept that society is changing, that society will be looking far more towards private consumer affluence? And of course, the, the person who makes the argument in 1950 that Labour should be, as it were, moving to centre and looking at this is, is Herbert uh, Morrison. Uh, but if, and so it, it's almost like this, this division between a more pragmatic side of Labour and a more ideological side of Labour. And that, that 1951 clash, so seismic on so many different levels, but also, in a sense, represents that division. And that division between a more ideological purity versus uh, pragmatism in terms of seeking power runs right through Labour's post-war history. And, and where is Wilson on this? Because he is one of the people who uh, resigns uh, along with Bevan over, over spectacles. And uh, yet he's also the figure who essentially unites the party um, by the time he becomes prime minister in 1964, doesn't he? He well, does. Before that, before that, I mean, essentially as well. And when he takes over from Gate School, he, he, he starts this, doesn't he? Yes, I think it says a great deal because in the 1950s, there is this, this clash between Bevan and Gate School. Gate School wins the leadership decisively in 1955. And there is a rapprochement between Bevan and Gate School post the 1955 general election. But it says a great deal that the person who comes to unite the Labour Party and bring it back to power is someone who'd resigned with an Iron Bevan and John Freeman, uh, was a Bevanite in that grouping in the early 50s, but had moved by the mid-1950s, took Bevan's place, actually, in the shadow cabinet in 1954, and then supported Gateskill for the leadership in 1955. And we can see some evidence there of one of Harold Wilson's great political skills, that he could unite across the political divides in the Labour Party and did so very successfully for Labour to win power in 1964. And was this partly because uh, he saw that um, if you do get too ideological, if you do go too far to the left, then, as happened in October 1951, the Tories win. And you're not in a position to, do, to, to uh, change society, uh, however much you try. I mean, there's a, there is an element, isn't there, of the more ideological or left-wing um, element of the Labour Party 
playing with fire, as it were, with if you lose the electorate. Yes, and, and interestingly, with, with Harold Wilson, he is the one party leader post-war who brought his party back to power after only one term in opposition. And of course, one of the things he was able to do as opposition leader in the early 70s, again, was to, tr to keep bringing uh, Labour back to pragmatism. And Harold's view of this was that he wanted, he wanted to keep the party united, but above all, he wanted a Labour Party that was in a position to win general elections, speaking to the immediate priorities of the British people. And I think that's one of the reasons why he won four of the five general elections he contested. That, uh, an extraordinary amount of time in, in office for eight years as, as Prime Minister. Um, your latest book on him is subtitled The Winner. Um, and it's it's an unashamedly revisionist uh, work. It, it rehabilitates him. Keir Starmer uh, says that it puts Harold Wilson in his rightful place. Why? Do, what do you believe is that rightful place in Labour history? And and considering how successful he was, why did he need to be rehabilitated? Well, I think you put your finger on one of the issues that I discovered when I started the biography, Andrew, because. My two previous biographical subjects both have deservedly high reputations. Uh, I, I'm never entirely convinced with these so-called prime ministerial league tables, but if you look at <laughs> the, the, the peacetime prime ministers post-war, Clem Attlee always tends to feature, doesn't he, in the, in the top one, two or three. He's always towards the, the, the very top. Yeah. Uh, Aaron Bevan has... Uh, a very high reputation for the creation of the National Health Service, which I think gives him an argument for being one of the most constructive post-war ministers who didn't hold the office of prime minister. So both Attlee and Bevan have this, this reputation. What puzzled me about Harold Wilson was that here you had someone who'd won four general elections. Uh, he had also, in my view, uh, produced changes, social changes, cha changes in the employment field, uh, you know, things, the anti-discrimination legislation on race relations, the Sex uh, Discrimination Act, a whole, uh, you know, Open University is, a, is another thing, a whole host of things that, in my view, were landmark achievements, because I think the test is always to look at what the opposing party does when it comes back to power. And if the opposing party doesn't re repeal things and, and accepts the inheritance, I think that's always an indication that the previous government has brought about lasting change. And so many of Harold's changes still, still shape society today. So this was the puzzle. And, and I think it's partly because the things that people tended to remember about him were negative. You know, the so-called pound in your pocket broadcast from 1967, which was regarded by some as misleading, the whole so-called lavender list resignation honours, but, but also to a certain extent because the, the 1980s and uh, Margaret, Margaret Thatcher's 11 years in power, Margaret Thatcher, amongst many other things, tended to define against the previous era. She tended to define against this a declinist 60s and 70s. And then, of course, by the time Labour comes to the mid-1990s to start to be getting to a stage of winning power, the last thing Labour of the 1990s wanted to do was to start harking back to the 60s and 70s. So they were looking forwards. 
So what it meant is that there was this, this partial neglect of Harold Wilson, but also the fact that it was in the interests of governments that, that followed to define him negatively. And as a consequence, in my view, uh, his, his real achievements became, became very, very obscured. And, and also, of course, there's the modernizing achievements with regard to, you mentioned um, sex uh, discrimination, but also, of course, homosexuality, abortion, capital punishment. I mean, these were, as you say, these were things that fundamentally changed British society and which the incoming Tory government didn't do anything about, didn't uh, try to uh, row back and and um, neither of any since. So it's uh, so he can, in a sense, in the, on the social level be seen as one of the game uh, the game changers the the uh the weather making prime ministers I, I think that's absolutely true and i think again one of the things that really struck me when i looked at these is of course many of them deliberately started life uh, as private members bills or with 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 mp sponsors for the whole reason that they wanted to seek more cross-party support for these measures. And, you know, Sidney Silverman campaigning for abolition of the death penalty, David Steele on the Abortion Act, my predecessor, but one for my constituency, Leo Absey, both for the, the Sexual Offences Act, for uh, divorce law reform. But of course, the way, the way that, that those works, they can only get onto the statute book if the government of the day is prepared to make sure they get the parliamentary time. And Harold, I think, makes two decisive contributions. The, the first is the appointment of Roy Jenkins as Home Secretary in December 1965 to replace Frank Soskis. Jenkins had written about this in the late 1950s. This, this more liberal social agenda was, was a central, central plank of his political philosophy. But secondly, in that era from 1964, certainly to late 1967, the three dominant figures of that government were George Brown, Jim Callaghan, and Harold Wilson. Both Jim and George felt that, that government time shouldn't be being used on these things. These, these were not proper things for the government to get involved in. And it was Harold, actually, who made sure that particularly Jenkins had the space for these things to get onto the statute book. And again, I think it's a, it's a series of lasting changes for which Harold Wilson has received little or no credit. There's always seemed to be a mystery, wasn't there, about why Harold Wilson suddenly resigned in the way that he did in uh, March 1976. He was only two years into um, governing after his electoral victory. He was still only 60 years old. Uh, his The dementia that he later suffered from had not revealed itself. There, there didn't seem to be a health reason. You know, <laughs> it's a perfectly understandable question to ask, why did he go? Now, you argue that he told his family uh, and he told the Queen uh, that he was going to go. Yes, fair enough. But that doesn't explain why he actually did. Was it really genuinely to spend more time with his family? Or did he feel like um, we've just seen Jacinda Ardern and Nicola Sturgeon just deciding that they, that they want to stop? I, th I think there is a real element of exhaustion about him, particularly in the second government. I do think that's an underrated government, by the way, and I've set out in, in the book some of the, particularly the employment law changes, obviously the, the stewardship of the European referendum, amongst other things that, that were achievements for that government. But there are things that, that really do stand out that show the extent to which he was tired. The, there's, a, there's a story in, in the book where uh, Harold 
but like every good party leader would hold a res proper reception for his whip's office at the end of each uh, parliamentary term to thank them for their work. And he, he had this memory trick where junior members of the whip's office or newly appointed whips, he would take around the parliamentary estate, take around the Palace of Westminster and would be able to point to each and every painting, could tell you the Opus Commission, could tell you the title, could tell you the painter. And there's a story in the book from, from Lord Tom Pendry about how in the summer of 1975, he was doing that, but very suddenly there was a painting where he just couldn't quite recall it. There's another story in the book where he's at one of the European renegotiate, renegotiation summits with Jim Callaghan, and he literally can't make the speech that he wants to. He doesn't feel he can do it. He's afraid that he's going to lose the thread of the speech. And Jim gave the speech and nobody really noticed because Jim was the foreign secretary. So it wasn't really surprising that the foreign secretary should give a speech. So nobody really noticed. And also that, you know, having to drink brandy before prime minister's questions, there are so many signs there in that 1974-76 period of how truly uh, exhausted he was. And of course, that that factors into uh, when he keeps the promise to his wife, Mary, to stand down after the two years. There are lots of things that are um, that surprised me in this book. And uh, but the thing that shocked me was which I had no idea about um, was that MI5 bugged the cabinet um, in uh, from 1963 to 1977. I mean, that is a truly astonishing thing. Are we able to listen to those uh, to those recordings? I'm assuming not. It would be it would be extremely useful, wouldn't it, for a oh. historian to be able to um, listen to to MI5's tape recordings of of cabinet meetings in those days. Oh, it would be extraordinary, wouldn't it, as a historian? I mean, if it was available, I think mm, we'd be some invaluable. of the first in the queue to try well, you're, to... Uh, you're, you were Shadow Home Secretary. Can't you ask them nicely? <laughs> <laughs> um, but there, but what else What else uh, does your book tell us, the previous uh, works? Because he, he did, of course, write his own uh, voluminous um, memoirs himself, didn't he? What... Uh, what else does your book tell us that we that we didn't know before about? Uh, so what I what I think was important here is is to look at where the new, the new material was coming from, and I did get his unpublished autobiography, which which I'm very grateful to to the Wilson family for providing. And that of course contains some of his views about other characters that I was able to draw on. The Lyndon Johnson Library in Texas, I should also say a word for because they were extraordinarily helpful. Uh, and were able to send me drop boxes of, of sheaths of documents, which were uh, very, very useful in terms of the real pressure that Harold came under in terms of committing troops to Vietnam. There was a real robustness about the way that Lyndon Johnson uh, sought to pressurise him into even providing a, a very small number uh, of uh, troops to Vietnam to assist the Americans in that situation. Uh, also, of course, I could use the papers at the National Archive, which hadn't been available to, to Ben Pilmlot and Philip Zeger. So all this enables me to give, to give that greater uh, picture together with the interviews I did with people at the time. But I think the one thing, the one thing really that, that, that stuck out to me is, of course, he had a reputation, still does to a certain extent, of the short-termist, the, the, the prime minister lacking in principle, the person going with unity at all costs. And yet it was his stewardship of the European issue that really did fascinate me. Because it's one where he's had a lot of criticism. And yet I, I, 
I did like the, the conversation the day after the 1975 referendum, where of course he'd secured the result that that he'd wanted. And, the, and I interviewed both Rob, the late Robert Armstrong and indeed Robin Butler, who were both uh, at that time in, in close proximity as civil servants. And there's this lovely moment where, by the way, uh, the, the Daily Telegraph praised Harold very much and said the result was frankly a triumph for Mr. Wilson. But he sits down that day after the referendum when he secured the, the, the two to one result. And whatever your particular perspective on Europe, that was the result the prime minister was trying to secure. And that's the result he did secure. And he, he, he says, people say to me, I've got no sense of strategy. But actually, I've spent over 10 years getting to this particular moment. And I think it's a revealing comment. And even someone like Roy Jenkins, who ostensibly in the early 70s was on a, a on a, in a different position on this debate had opposed the holding of the referendum and of course rebelled against the Labour whip in 1971 to vote in favour of entry even he later recognised that actually maybe with what Harold achieved he his stewardship was far better than I gave him credit for at the time. Now your next book uh you're going to be in much more choppy waters aren't you politically because uh it's about Ramsay MacDonald, who is still considered the great sort of traitor to socialism within the Labour Party. Um, uh, tell us about him. Are you going to write a revisionist biography resuscitating his reputation? <laughs> well, well, uh, Andrew, I've, I've, I've speculated on a number of different uh, subjects for, for my next week. I'm hoping to be very busy over the next few years and, and perhaps have a, a little break from the, the writing for a little while. Just to, just, <laughs> yes, no, I'm just, not saying just... you're about to publish it any anytime <laughs> soon, but but the, the concept of Ramsay MacDonald is, yes. is, a, is a much more um, tricky one, isn't he, for a Labour politician like you? Oh, Extraordinary. I mean, Ramsay MacDonald is, 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 has always fascinated me because when I was writing the book on Clement Attlee, Clem Attlee, in, in 1945, of course, the, the general election held in July, Clem Attlee wins the landslide, and then there's the Labour Party conference later in the year. Clem Attlee is announced as Britain's first socialist prime minister. Now, if ever there was writing somebody out of history completely, then there it was. And what's always fascinating me about Ramsay MacDonald, obviously that seminal 1931 decision to join the national government and to abandon the Labour Party, which, which is by anyone's measure a huge moment in, in the first half of the, the 20th century in British politics. But what fascinated me was that you would have to give him enormous credit for the Labour Party becoming a party of government. He is he is central to that in terms of not only the building up of the, the party machinery along with Arthur Henderson, but also its respectability to both become the government in 1924. And then, of course, for the first time, although Labour didn't win a majority in 1929, they were for the first time the largest party at an election. And this, this contradiction between this politician who did so much to make Labour a party of government, but then, of course, Nia destroys it in 1931, has always uh, fascinated me. And do you think that he did, as he was accused of doing, succumb to the aristocratic embrace? Uh, or, um, a great phrase, or or do you not think that uh, he, he what he did was the patriotic uh, thing to do at the time of, 
of uh, massive uh, world dislocation of of trade. You're the trade minister, and imagine what you'd have tried to have done or needed to do uh, after the Wall Street crash, for example. Yeah, and look, every, I think each Western government was swept away eventually by the Wall Street crash. So nobody is is doubting the uh, the, the seismic nature of those events. Uh, I've always thought there was a mixture of motives in what McDonald did. I don't think it's so easy to to pick out one or the other. And this is one of the reasons why he's always fascinated me to try to look at those those days, those remarkable days in August of 1931, where, of course, the Labour cabinet couldn't agree, first of all, on the way forward, the to and fro between him and, of course, the king. And the decisions that that he ends up that he ends up making, and I think, unpicking that as a historian, has always been something of great interest to me. Well, we look forward to that. The um, to move on from uh, Labour Party history, uh, in August 2022, you had the great honour of being one of 39 Britons to be banned from entering uh, entering Russia. Um, which uh, you know, first of all, congratulations for that. That's uh, that's uh, quite a thing. Uh, secondly, do you think history provides us with any guide as to where where this war's going? I think it, I think it provides us first of all with a sure guide as to as to the kind of person we are we are dealing with in terms of Putin and Russia. How many times have we seen this in Europe? Unfortunately where we've had dictators, and that's what Putin is, dictators who are seeking to overrun the sovereign territory of another nation. And I think it's meant a great deal, I think, that we've had over the Ukraine war since that invasion of February last year, a a real strong cross-party consensus. And I thought it, it, it was symbolic when we, you know, I, I was privileged to be at the front of Westminster Hall to hear that address from President Zelensky. And it was good to see both the, the cabinet and shadow cabinet, and indeed other party leaders too, all stood as one at the front, which I thought was extraordinarily important. The second thing, though, I think history does tell us around this is you have to be prepared to stay the course. And of course, we're very supportive of the government providing assistance to Ukraine. And we need to continue now to do that and to be prepared for the fact that this may not sadly have a swift conclusion. So history does give us a a, uh, um, a sense of um, not necessarily what's going to happen tomorrow, but what we need to continue to to do in terms of uh, of supporting Ukraine. I, I think so. And when when you look at the the history, and you know you've done this, Andrew. You, I mean, you've you've written both Napoleon and Churchill, so you, you you've seen this in terms of the different perspectives across the centuries. They do give us, of course, a context. They do give us guide. Of course, nobody's suggesting it's a perfect repeat of history. We both know that doesn't happen, but they do give us a sense of the different places that something like this could lead to. Where do you think we are at the moment, Nick, on the um, the the um, sort of history matters struggles that we're having in this country at the moment with regard to um, renaming streets because they were named after imperialists or or taking down statues and so on? What's your what's your sense of of how this is playing out at the moment? Well, I taught history I, and 
politics for the uh, best part of 14 years before I became a member of parliament. Uh, my view always was that it was never, it was not my job to teach my students what to think. My job, I hope, was to teach them how to think. It was to encourage them to be able to look critically at history, to be able to look at the, the sources that particular views came from and to compare it with, with other sources and to make up their own minds. And I've, I've never wavered from that belief uh, in history. History is there. You, you, you can't uh, hide bits of it. History is there. What I would just, what I've always believed in is trying to give as many people as possible the, the tools, if you like, to be able to make up their own minds and, and, and take their own analysis of it. And by the way, the other point I would just make is one of the great things about history, in my view, is debate around history. And I've, you know, e even today I've been at a, uh, out at a post-16 college in my own constituency debating uh, young students about various different things. And that kind of healthy debate is what I want to see across our society. There's a question I ask, two questions that I ask every uh one of my guests. The first one is what book uh, or by history book or biography you're reading at the moment? What have you got on your bed, bedside table? I'm actually rereading a book at the moment that I read some years ago and I, I'd forgotten how beautifully written it is. And it's Dennis Healy's memoir, The Time of My Life. And I've been I've been thinking about Dennis Healy quite a bit in recent days, actually, because, of course, Dennis Healy is the one who said that every politician needs a hinterland. And I suppose hist history is, is very much part uh, of my hinterland, but it's also a reminder that if you want to be in politics or indeed public life, which can be all consuming, you do in my view need those other interests as well. He had a hell of a hinterland, didn't he? I mean, not least being a beach master on D-Day. Uh, oh, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, him as him as soldier, but you, you remember as well, even when he was front rank politician, of course, with Chancellor the Exchequer in those very difficult and pressured 1970s days for five years, the interest in music, poetry, literature, all the things that gave him such, such a rich life are remarkable. Do you think we've we've lost a bit of that? I mean, I'm, I'm also thinking, although Ted Heath wasn't my favourite uh, politician, you think of him, his yachting, his uh, his music, you know, his professional level conductor. You know, where are there are there those kind of, uh, of sort of Renaissance men um, still in, in politics or is politics changed just so much with social media and all the time pressures and so on that uh, it's next to impossible to have people with those kind of hinterlands? Well, you can't you can't imagine a, a prime minister taking part in an ocean yachting race these days, can you? In the way that uh, in the way that Ted Heath did, I, I do think, and this is a, a reminder to all of us in public life that that distinction uh, between, if you like, the you know what Dennis Healy called uh, the hinterland and then the, the forward facing or front facing part of your life, which which he thought was so important. I do think in the social media age, it's increasingly difficult to maintain that distinction because uh, social media is, is is almost ever present unless you're unless you're very careful. If you're a politician, everywhere you go, there's this this possibility of you know someone takes a photograph and or, or, or whatever you're doing is recorded. But I think it's a reminder to all of us that 
however all-consuming the debates of the day are, we all have to try to make that space uh, in our lives for other things, even though I do think it is more difficult now than it was 40, 50 years ago. And what's your uh, what's your favourite what if? What's the uh, the counterfactual that you enjoy? Well, I, I, I'm going to choose one of the one of the post-war uh, British politics counterfactuals, which fascinates me. And it's what if Jim Callaghan had called a general election in October 1978 before the so-called winter of discontent? Yes, uh, much more difficult for Margaret Thatcher to win that. Um, I mean, all the all the polls suggest that uh, that he'd have won. What uh, he he was already um, getting on, wasn't he? How long do you think he would have uh, carried on? Would he have done a Wilson and, and handed on to somebody in next generation uh, after a couple of years? Yeah, it's difficult. By about what nineteen eighty or so. It's difficult to see that Jim would have done a full parliament. But again, I think I think Jim is underrated in in a number of different ways. I think what happened to Jim is he, he gets defined by that final winter. When actually, if you look uh, at the where the opinion polls were, if you look at his approval ratings in 78, they they actually weren't weren't in a bad position. But of course, that fateful decision in autumn of 1978 and then the what turned out to be a a real uh real change making defeat in may 1979 is what came to define him but i think he actually deserves more credit for his performance as prime minister than others have given him and then who would have taken over from uh from jim canahan say jim canahan stays in in power for 18 months or two years like wilson did after the 74 election who's who's um front runner are we talking about a oh gosh i don't know who was who was uh i mean dennis healy perhaps uh, i think i think in a strong position wouldn't he i think dennis healy is in a strong position because when i mean i mean jim timed his resignation in 1980 so that mps exclusively still had the power to choose the next leader and of course he undoubtedly would have preferred Dennis Healy to Michael Foote. And Dennis Healy only lost to Michael Foote in very different circumstances by about 10, I think it was 10 votes, 139129. What about, um, here's, here's a counterfactual on your counterfactual. If you have Roy Jenkins as leader, then you don't have the SDP, do you, in uh, 1982? And you don't split the vote and the Tories certainly don't have a chance to come back at all in the 1980s, do they? Well, well, though, though, Den- uh, sorry, though, Roy Jenkins, of course, had left in 1976, hadn't he? He'd gone to he'd gone to to Brussels. Yeah, but he did come back. <laughs> you know, if we're if we're doing counterfactuals, you're allowed to to take a <laughs> uh, a journey back from Brussels to London. <laughs> it's not asking too much for a counterfactual. Let's, okay, let's 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 assume he'd he'd made the journey back. I, th- I think that the you make is is uh, a really interesting one actually because yes you you Roy Jenkins you don't get the you certainly don't get the split you don't get the the, the formation of the SDP which I, again I think is a an underplayed part of 1980s history because that that split on the left and centre left is is obviously helpful to to Margaret Thatcher. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Uh... Nick, I appreciate that. And uh, obviously, I hope that you'll be writing your Ramsey MacDonald book very soon. But uh, it sounds like you might be quite busy um, doing other things if if things go wrong for my party. Uh, Very nice to have spoken to you. And I really appreciate the 
fascinating things you have to say about Labour Party history. Lovely to join you, Andrew. Thank you very, very much indeed. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. My thanks to Nick Thomas-Simmons for an invigorating conversation. Join us for the next Secrets of Statecraft podcast, where my guest will be former National Security Advisor and Ambassador to the United Nations, John Bolton. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcast or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.